Welcome to Radar. This program can be heard at thevinyldistrict.com or anywhere fine podcasts are found. Here is your host, Evan Toth. The top of the Empire State Building is an impressive place to say you're doing any activity. It's even more exciting to say that you're hosting a radio program. Well, that's what listeners in the New York City area imagined when they tuned in to Z100 on their radio dial. Okay, so maybe in actuality they weren't broadcasting exactly from that lofty location, but the theatrical panache solidified Z100 into what is now considered perhaps the most influential radio station in the world. However, there was a time when that claim was not true. In the early 1980s, a successful host from Florida was sent to the swampy meadowlands of New Jersey to create a radio station that would rival all others in the New York City metro area. That man was Scott Shannon, and he is my guest this week to discuss a new film that has been released, which explores those primal days at Z100 and how they climbed from the bottom of the ratings all the way to the top. It's called From Worst to First and also features memories and interviews from John Bon Jovi, Joan Jett, Niall Rogers, Debbie Gibson, and of course, Scott Shannon. Shannon joins me to discuss the path that led him to Z100, how playing it safe is a fool's game, and what was so special about the musical mix cooked up by Shannon and his compatriots. So while we're not joining you from the top of the Empire State Building, it doesn't matter. Shannon long ago reminded us all that radio is indeed a theater of the mind. No one says that you can't close your eyes and imagine Scott Shannon and I conversing on the 102nd floor of the most iconic Art Deco skyscraper in New York City. Man, would you just look at that view? Oh, that's a cool setup. That's, that's one of the coolest setups I've seen anybody have. Well, I'm a professional, Evan. What are you talking about? That's absolutely right. Absolutely. How are you, Mr. Shannon? Now, what is uh, whose library is that behind you? This is my library. This is my stuff that I've been collecting since I was a little guy. Holy cow. You know, I feel terrible. See, I here's that I have. I can't. Show, I guess I could show you, but I have racks. Different. Are those wood or metal? These are Ikea um, like uh, particle board. You know, right. I've got I've got uh, I set up a little radio station in my basement back much like when I was a kid and I got an actual turntable over here. Right. And uh, I got all the stuff I need. But I had I had a tremendous collection because I, you know, I've traveled a lot over the years. And sure. uh, and, and, you know, it, it's kind of funny because I've also got I've got I, I well, let's put it this way. Three years ago, I had close to, I would say, 3,000 albums. And I prop, I have a huge collection of CDs. And, uh, and I also collect 45s. And uh, I have an old RCA record player that was, uh, they, they used to make them back in the 60s that only played 45s, Evan. The, the, right, the little with the, it's got the big hole, you just kind of slide them down. Right. And, and, and it was a, it was a maroon Melmac, almost like pl- as a kind of a plastic and the lid opened up right. and it was all self-contained and you could put your stack of 45s on there when the girls are coming over and you're having a party. Right. And, and then it just drops down one after the other. And it's a really good sounding thing, but who needed a radio station when you had that? 
I have, uh, I have had country albums, probably just like you do. I had uh, my favorites that weren't hits. I had, I probably had three complete sets of every Beatle album, right? Still, still in the cellophane, unopened. So one day I, I'm sitting down here and uh, I have a, you know, I have a board and uh, all the stuff you need. Uh, and I said, you know. I've always said I'm going to be listening to those albums when I get old. And then it hit me that I am old and I'm not listening to them. Right. So what I, what I, what I decided to do is liquidate my collection before I got to the point where I couldn't do it. Right. You know, I'm, I'm coming up on 75 years old. And that's, that's, you know, I mean, I don't live that life of a typical guy that old. I'm still in very healthy shape. I play golf like five days a week and, you know, when it's warm right. and, uh, and, and I, I work out, I mean, I'm not a workout nut, but I work out quite a bit. And, uh, and so I just, I started selling off pieces. And of course you had all kinds of crazy test pressings. You had all kinds of promo copies. You had stuff that uh, only came to the station probably and uh, stuff that was hanging around. I bet you had a great collection. I still have a, you know, a pretty good collection. I mean, I have, I have original 45, but that, that thing about it is, is it, it, it's such a hassle to carry them around. You're still young enough and, and you can have a home, but how often do you pull, you know, I come down the basement and I go through them sometimes and I'll just read the liner notes. Right. And I'll, Cause what the funny thing about it is I also have a huge book collection of, just about every book ever written about a rock and roll star, R and B star from Otis Redding to uh, the guy who sang last kiss. I got a book about him. I got a book about Louie Louie. I just, uh, I just had this read a great book about Jan Barry from Jan and Dean. Right. This guy researched that whole automobile accident. He's got pictures of this guy, Jan and Jan and Dean. And um, it's just an amazing, it's not a, it's, a small book, but it was just so well researched. I don't go by the the topic of the story. A lot of it's a lot of it depends on the actual writer, right? And how good they write it. So anyway, that's and you know the other thing too with music now digital, and and I'm not that I'm not that good at it, but I don't have like I don't have. A, a lot of music. I haven't put a lot of music, you know, on my phone or on my computer. Uh, it's too hard to find, in my opinion. But well, I'm I'm glad to hear you start the conversation with all that information because it really um, illustrates who you are and the kind of person you are. And your you, you love music. That's number one. Yeah. And again, that's what makes you who you are. That's what's really interesting about your story. Uh, so we're here today to talk about your this new film, this documentary from worst to first, the story of Z100 and your involvement in it. Well, I go back to the beginning of 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 my my love for music and radio. I grew up in the Midwest. Well, I grew up everywhere. My father was in the service in the U.S. Army. So I lived in Japan, Seattle, Washington, San Diego, Detroit, St. Louis, Indianapolis, uh, where else? All over the place. All over. And uh, uh, I discovered I wanted to be a baseball player. And I, I played all, you know, the usual sports People played football, baseball, basketball. I was out all the time. Didn't play hockey. 
didn't play uh, lacrosse and all that kind of, you know, the newer type of things kids play. Right. But uh, I wanted to be a, a professional baseball player. And as most kids uh, that aspire to do that, they don't get to do it. Right. And uh, and then things changed when I was like 12 or 13, when a neighbor of mine, Jimmy Branson was his name and his brother, Jerry. Uh, I go over to their house and hang out and they play basketball and this kind of thing. And uh, I found uh, one day he pulled out his sister's little record box. I don't know if you were around they had a little handle on them. You got one over there? I should have known. I should have known, Evan. There it is. That's it. If you, oh, my God. Well, yep. It's got These are my Christmas records. Here's, uh, here's uh, Gene Autry. Gene Autry doing uh, Here Comes Santa Claus. Oh, man. Sandy, not Santa. Sandy Claus. You're right. Sandy Claus. But he had it. Well, in hers, she had that little paper in there, you know, the little cardboard thing with all the, and she right. had a number on each record. And I said, what, what is this? They said, well, that's my big sister. She was like 17. This is her rock and roll file. Right. Oh, let's play. What do you do? I mean, I knew what a record was, obviously. My father had kind of, but, and then, and she had, uh, don't be cruel in there on one side and Elvis hound dog on the other side. Right. And we just started, you know, part of our hanging out, we started playing those songs. And I said, man, that looks great. So what I did was I went through my father's collection. He had some 45s and he, he you know, I didn't even, didn't even know he had them until I noticed, I didn't notice them or paying attention to them. And uh, that was the beginning of a, a lifetime love affair. And I, I went through his records and took the ones that sounded kind of rocky, you know? Right. And at that time, uh, had the Eldorados, you know, crazy little mama come knock, knock, knocking, knocking on my front door, door, door. Right. I don't have that in that box, do you? No, and, I don't think I have that one. I, I certainly know it, but I, I don't know if I, I have do it. know it. So that, and, I, and even even I would get like a catch a falling star and put it in your pocket. Perry Como. I like that song. Had a little hook to it. You know, little did I know it was, you know, an old fogies kind of song. But and then I started, you know, I, I got a paper route and I started caddying at a golf course to make money to buy one or two forty fives every week. Right. I would pedal my little Schwinn bike. So anyway, that was the beginning. And then we found out that, that you know, I discovered the top 40 radio and the fact that you could hear these songs on the radio. Right. And they would tell you the new ones. And I got fascinated by the DJ. So anyway, one thing led to another. And I left home when I was 17 to become a disc jockey. Well, unfortunately for me at that time, it didn't work so well. You know, I had no experience. I'm 17 years old. So I had to focus on making a living. I ran away from home and I had to eat. Right. I had 40 bucks when I left. So I just be I just became kind of a I was uh, uh, inspired by this book called uh, On the Road by Jack Kerouac sure. and, and the TV show Route 66. So all that rolled into one. And, and finally, I managed to weasel my way into radio. I, you know, uh, fake it till you can make it. Absolutely. So, well, so I, I, I loved it so much. I, and I tell people I didn't have a plan B. I was going to be a DJ at now there's nothing else. And I didn't, it didn't, it didn't, I didn't realize didn't get close until I was like 18 or 19 
when Uncle Sam called and I got drafted. The reason that was connected with my uh, story, <clears throat> I mean, the only reason that was con uh, connected to my story was then I was in a small enough town where you could approach the radio station. They would let you come in. Right. Wow. And watch the DJ work. And I said, well, you know, I'm a DJ. I used to be a DJ when I was back home. Oh, yeah. You got a tape. No, I had to leave too early. I didn't uh, have a chance to get one. Right. Said, well, we'll try you out here. And I just kind of imitated the DJ. And that's how I got going. But it was a it was a love affair. Music and radio both intertwined. Like uh, in the in the actual movie, you can see. Uh, it, me talking about this radio station that when I was a kid in Indianapolis, my mom used to uh, go downtown. We lived outside of town on an army post and my mom would go shopping. And I heard about this station that had a big window where you could watch the DJ work. Right. So I said, mom, can you drop me off on the way and, I'll, and pick me up on, and I'll be out front of that radio station. She said, by yourself. I said, yeah, I'll be fine. You know, two hours. So I'd stand there and look in the window and watch this guy work. I said, holy crap, that's the job for me right there. You know, he had all those 45s and he flicked through them. He put them on. He had phone calls. He'd be talking to girls and things. I, said, I need to do that right there. Right. So, so that's how it all got started. And when I got drafted in the army, I actually talked my way into a station. When I got out of the army, I actually started my career. I was in heaven. I got my, I think I got paid $118 a week. The first job right around 1969. Wow. And, uh, and it's much like major league, uh, my minor league baseball, you start out in a, you know, down here and then you move up, then you move to double a, then you move up to triple a, and then you get to go to the majors, which which was the the Meadowlands of New Jersey. How how did you get to how did you get to New Jersey? Could this story have happened in another state or another place, or was there something magical happening in the uh, the the water, the swamps of the Meadowlands of New Jersey? Oh, I don't think that was it. It was it was kind of funny because I had uh, I I early on I I learned that if I was going to work for a uh, what they call program director. I wanted to work for one that I got along with and, uh, and I wanted to learn, you know, I, I never lost this, this, uh, this appetite for learning more about music and about radio. Right. And, um, and, and uh, I just, uh, you know, I took one step. I worked in, you know, Mobile, Memphis, Nashville. Then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And as I moved along, I became more and more proficient and I understood, I mean, I had a passion for this music and, and a passion for talking to people about it. I was always still very shy as far as crowds go. I mean, I, I'm, I'm okay if I'm one-on-one -on -one or two-on-two, if I know the people, but right. man, I have to go to a dinner party or something or somewhere I'm, I'm a mess. No, I got to write the name who might be there and all that kind of stuff. Wow. But I thought it was so cool that you could work in a small room with a microphone and you could talk to people and they couldn't argue with you. It's just you talking to them right. and I could pick the music and all that. I just uh, it, it was it was heaven to me. I thought, oh, my God, what a way to make a living. So, you know, eventually I got better and better. And, and uh, at one point 
uh, I became what what's known as a program director. They were the boss of the DJs. They got to pick the music. They got to design the format, whatever you wanted to call it. And they did all the, the little cards that the DJs would read and all that. And uh, I became known as a, a guy, uh, a fix, a fix it guy. Uh, have gun will travel, have microphone will travel. And I would go from station to station and take over a loser and try to build it into a number one station. Right. And uh, it, it, it worked for me in several markets. And uh, finally, I landed in Tampa, Florida, where um, this, this station had once been on top and now had been crushed by a couple of the new stations. And they wanted to rebuild the glory of this station. So they brought me in. And at that time, I had been doing afternoons. I started out at night as a night jock. Then I did afternoons. And then I uh, I got fired in Washington, D.C. because the uh, I wanted to be on the radio and the owner of the station didn't think I was good enough to be on the radio. Right. So I, and I just I wasn't happy at all. But I took the station, you know, to number one, which was good. But then even after that, he fired me because I wasn't I just didn't get along. I didn't respect the person. And he really was a bully. And so um, and then I and I happened to meet a girl back then that I liked, but I couldn't stay in D.C. because nobody knew who I was and I couldn't go to another station. So right. I decided I was going to be a morning man. That was what I wanted to do. And uh, and that changed everything because you could be a morning man. And if they fired you, you were pretty famous in the city. You follow me, Evan? Right. Yeah. So you had that you had that cachet already. Right. Up, right. You didn't have to pick up your all your records and your clothes and get a U-Haul trailer and move. Right. So I decided I wanted to be a morning man. And I had the advantage of being a fairly well-known program director who could change the uh, the luck and the and the tide of your radio station. I could, you know, and I could turn it around if you had a problem. So these people in Tampa had been doing great and they got attacked by other stations and, and they had uh, lost uh, their rating. So they said, uh, how would you like to come here and fix our station? I said, I'd love to, but I want to do the morning show. What? You ever done it before? Nope. And they said, don't worry. That's okay. That's whatever you want. Just come and fix our station. So that was a great break for me. And they already had a morning guy there. And um, that's where I came up with this concept where it would be kind of a talk show, kind of a music show, kind of a comedy show, kind of an interview show and mix it all up and call it the Q morning zoo. The station was WRBQ and it was the Q morning zoo. And uh, from there we, we had a, a lot of success. And, uh, and this guy from Cleveland his company, a small company that he ran bought a little, a license of a station that was in Livingston, New Jersey. They were licensed, I think, to Newark, but the station was in it was a jazz station and the signal only got around New Jersey, a little right. bit of New York. But he also uh, found out that the guy had a license to put the tower on top of the Empire State Building, oh, which appealed know. to him. So he paid like I think um, I think it cost him 12 million dollars and uh by the time I left, the station was worth 80, 90 million dollars. Yeah, I mean, wasn't my money. So, you know, but anyway, and then that's where that all started. And uh, we figured uh, we wanted to do a top 40 station. Uh, the reason the movie is against all odds. Is that 
a station had never been successful originating their programming from New Jersey. Right. For some reason, that was just people, you know, how people, how these beliefs start. And they just thought, well, it doesn't work. You got to be a New Jersey station. You only appeal to New Jersey. But with the tower up on top of the Empire Staple, it covered the in, entire tri-state area. So uh, uh, before the station even went on, they hired me to move from Tampa to go up and, and challenge all these big name companies. And uh, it's it's kind of a David and Goliath story. You yeah. Know? We, had, we didn't have anybody that we didn't have any connections. They were from Cleveland. I was from Tampa. Uh, and nobody in the media knew who I was. I had no reputation in New York. New York was an isolated media town. Mm. If you weren't well known in the post or in New York magazine, or, or if you weren't on, you know, television being inter interviewed by, you know, Regis Philbin or something like that, nobody knew who you were. You had Imus going, you had cousin Brucey going, you had all these big stars uh, Jim Kerr was a big star then. Sure. And, um, and, and basically there was no, there was no publicity whatsoever. We had uh, most of these stations had staffs of like 90 to 110 people. We had 21 people. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I remember yeah. when I was a kid hearing that uh, the moniker, you know, from the top of the Empire State Building, and you talk about that in the film. And I, I definitely pictured you guys in a studio, you know, staring down the whole city while you were broadcasting. But I remember some kid in school one time saying to me, you know, they're not really at the top of the Empire State Building, you idiot. You know, the antennas there, but the studios are in New Jersey. And it, and it sort of started my understanding of what goes on behind the curtains in uh, showbiz. What other what other showbiz kind of marketing because you were the marketing director too at z100 at the beginning people don't understand these different hats that you were you were busy didn't have a marketing director i did all the advertising and, and 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 well we we did you know somebody in the movie gary fisher who was our first sales manager said you know you were the you you had one of the first viral campaigns right. you know because we had no way of not one newspaper mentioned well one paper did a guy wrote for the daily news said this station's horrible this i hope this guy's got a round trip ticket back to tampa right and uh but there was we had to do it on our own but it was a viral campaign you know we got the, the first ratings come out and we were 51st yeah. 51st. There's not that, you know, I think some of the stations from Philly beat us. It was a uh, uh, scary. And my wife's going, are we going to be okay? We just, right. you know, I hadn't even married her yet. She, we were, she didn't want to come. And uh, I'm not moving up there with you unless we're married. I said, well, all right, bye-bye. And then I started missing her and I said, well, maybe we could work something out here. Yeah. So, and, well, that, uh, that was nice of you. I thought, well, I was pretty lonely here. Uh, it's funny because I lived in the Harmon Cove Towers, which is about 200 yards away from the radio station, right there in the by the, uh, by the train tracks. I know where those. It's right. I had to go over the bridge, over the train tracks every morning to work. Right. But at that time, the Harmon Cove Towers right there on uh, Meadowlands Parkway was brand new. So you had the. You had the white, white walls. They hadn't even painted them yet. I moved in and I had the same kind of walls at the radio station. So I'd work. I'd be at the radio station from four o'clock in the morning till 
seven or eight at night. And then I go home and the same, I had the same walls. You know, it was, it was really weird. It wasn't a great way to live, but that's what we were doing. And the first ratings came out. And like I said, we were in 51st place and we went on the radio and we said, you know what? We're going to go from worst to first and you can help us. And it was a it was kind of a rant. And um, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, when I did the original rant, I had the song. I had the tiger in the background. We tried to use that for the movie and they wanted a fortune for that. Uh, uh, that's, you know, some some uh, behind the curtains. That is the most expensive song available for people to use in a movie or a TV show. Sure. Uh, it'll pump you up. Yeah, I just picked the wrong song. <laughs> I was trying to afford it for the movie. You know, and there's a lot of different people in the movie who were involved in the in the actual building of the station. John Bon Jovi, uh, Joan Jett, um, Taylor Dane. We had, let's see, who did I leave out? Um, Debbie Gibson. She was in the, she's in there. Nile Rogers from Chic. Yep. And uh, our very first guest ever was Tony Orlando. That's right. Great story, too. There was a kid that uh, was an intern at the station. He was the only intern we had. And uh, I was no artist would come up and guest on the show. Right. So they didn't, nobody knew the station. He said, well, I can get you a famous guest. I said, well, who can you get? He said, Tony Orlando. I said, you can get Tony Orlando to come on this station. Right. And he said, yeah. I said, how do you know Tony Orlando? I thought he was just making it up. He said, because I work at the uh, telethon and he's the host. Right. And I'll see him this weekend. I said, will you ask him if he'll come on and be uh, on the radio with us? And sure enough, Tony came by. So he was the legend, the first person ever first guest on the show but i like the story the other part of that story is that he didn't just he didn't just come out of nowhere he came because he remembered you a little bit too right you guys had, had a little when i was in nashville uh i i had just become the program director so i could add the music and he had a new song out and i added it and be, you know one of the first stations in the country he actually called me and i'm going oh tony orlando's on the line what is this he was a big star then right, right. i broke I, I played his first record early for him and they always seem to appreciate that there's there's you know there's a lot of lessons in this thing and i didn't realize it but you see what determination and concentration actually does no matter what your mission, no matter what your goal in life is. If you don't have a plan B, mm. if you work hard and you don't give up, you, you just got to keep plowing. I mean, I was scared to death that it wasn't going to work. I mean, on one hand, I was confident and cocky and, you know, don't worry, we're going to New York. We're going to kick their butts. And all of a sudden, we didn't kick their butts. <laughs> we're number 51. And on the other hand, I, I had this fear. I don't know why this hasn't been done before. Why hasn't anyone had a successful top 40 station? WABC was top 40. They went out of business. I mean, they went out, they changed formats. Right, right. And so it was, uh, you know, one is like passive aggressive, I guess. I was really confident of what I could do. And, you know, I had to get a second win when we found out we were 51st. But and the other lesson that's in that movie is if some if you hire someone to do a job, 
leave them alone and let them do it. Right. I mean, I can't tell you how many times that I've worked since that time. And no matter what, you know, you get who, if a person is the boss, they think they're the smartest. Right. And you have to do what they want to do. They don't care. Uh, one of my, one of my lessons in life that I remember, um, <clears throat> I was talking to a, a guy that I work for and we were, he wanted us to go fly and talk to another station that they owned and fix it. And I said, he said, we're going to have to let the general manager go. We're going to you know, change the format. And I said, why is that? Can't we just tell him what we're going to do? Put a zoo on that kind of thing. He said, not that kind of guy. He wants to do it his way. He said, Scott, you won't believe this, but in this business, there are some people, he said, in every business, there are people who would rather fail doing it their way right. than be successful doing it your way. Right. I went, that doesn't make any sense at all. And that's in all industries. That's uh, that's uh, you know you you have someone at the uh, the head of anything that's uh, you know my way or the highway kind of a mentality and doesn't trust their uh, their employees, then you have a problem. Now the the thing about it is is like I didn't want to write a book. People keep telling me you should write a book. I can't write a book. I don't, I'm I'm ADD. I can't. I just I can't focus. I can barely read a book, right. let alone write a book. Yeah, it's got to be a really good book for me to finish it. So my wife said, you know, she saw this uh, documentary on WLIR on TV one evening. She said, you know, we could do that about Z100 when you started that. I said, that sounds like a lot of work. Right. She said, said, well, no, I don't think it'd be that much work. And she was wrong. (laughs) I think she I think she knew and she just sucked me into it. So, uh and she's one of the producers. And then the other thing about it that was important, too, is the fact that I wanted to build something that was I wanted to build a brand that would last a lot of radio stations. You know, even in New York, you had so many radio stations that were really popular for a couple of years and then kaboom, they faded away. Right. And Z100 has been a constant presence in not only New York, but the country. That's right. Well, you know, and, and it all started, you know, in Secaucus right there on Meadowlands Parkway. Unbelievable. Scott, what was, how did you think about your own top 40 playlist, you know, as program director? How did you, how did you think of what you wanted to play at, rather than what the other stations were doing? What, what did you look for? What was your kind of secret sauce in putting, putting those playlists together? Well, I was very careful. I hired all the disc jockeys were from other towns. I didn't want, a New York radio station. I wanted a great radio station that happened to be in New York. Mm. So, but the one thing I did do, I hired a young man to be our music director uh, who knew he was a research oriented guy. And he, and he was fastidious about the way he called record stores and tabulated requests and all this name was named Michael Ellis. And he's in the movie. And uh, he was our only uh, New Yorker, other than uh, on the morning show, I had uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Jonathan B. Bell, who was from New Jersey, but he knew, knew he'd been here for years and uh, he knew New York and he really helped me understand the community as we went along. But and, and what we did was we surveyed not just the white pop records, we did the R&B songs, too. African-American stores reported to us also. And we we did a very careful mix 
of the two types of music together. And uh, it was up-tempo for the most part. We play one or two slow songs an hour. One would be a, a, a white appeal record, and the other would be R&B. And it wasn't about skin color if it had the rhythm and the beat. And and if, if uh, you know, you look at somebody like Lionel Richie, that's not exactly soul music, but it was pop. So he, you know, he was in the pop category and then you got to, you know, other people who might've been white, but they had a kind of a rhythm beat, you know? Right. Uh, I would, I would, has, I would, I think I would say Gloria Stefan had a rhythm kind of sound to her. She's not the most soulful person in the world, but that she had kind of a soulful sound. Right. But putting those, you know, today, I don't know that you'd get away with being able to just and 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 it doesn't sound particularly uh, maybe it is particularly groundbreaking even today, because even though we, we have access to all this music and streaming and everything is at our fingertips, uh, still, there's still that uh, um, resistance uh, with people listening to different genres and, and taking a little musical risk that people are still a little skittish of. And even if you turn the dial today on the, uh, on the station, there's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, uh, 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 different uh, sounds. Yeah. You know, on the same station, at least, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, this was the perfect time and the perfect place for what we did, but uh, I would change song. I would, add songs at any time. A lot of stations have certain type days and, and they put the add two records a week or, you know, it's a, it's a, we didn't do it like that. It was very uh, gut and emotion uh, driven. You know, it was, there was a soul to that radio station. And you'll see people say that grew up listening to Z100. It was like, it was a, a breathing animal, the whole thing. And, 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 and it actually, captured the beat of the street i just uh i mean it, it was a very emotional um adventure for me well you had a lot riding on it you had your career you had your your future with your your wife you're trying to make a name for yourself so it, this concept of uh you know playing it safe or uh, you know really risking things comes up a lot in the story about c100 and and you did you took a lot of risks and maybe initially you felt uh oh this might not work but it really it paid off you know people are afraid to do that though well there's a lot of different you know i i had I wanted to leave deep footprints and I wanted our personalities to leave deep footprints. They had names and nicknames that people remembered, you know, like Jack the Whack. We had uh, Mr. Leonard. Of course. We had a lime green pinto. We had, uh, you know, Shadow Steel. The shadow is on Janet from another planet, you know, things like that. It was just, uh, and people had never heard radio like that before. Right, right. It's like creating a character. Who came up with that? Did you do? Did you kind of tell them you're going to be Janet Planet, or did you? Did they kind of come up with that themselves? Did they walk in with those ideas, or what? What was the, you know, what was the overall idea there? How did you? How did you kind of craft that? Well, I kind of helped. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I helped. We had Hollywood Hamilton. He was one of the stars on the station, and it was just, uh, you know, like Jonathan, uh, Doctor Jonathan B. Bell. I, I keep saying Doctor. He was a professor, right? It what, just, would, what would my what would I make my name? Evan Toth, uh, 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 energetic. I don't know what easy Evan. You know, something like heaven, Evan from heaven. You know, I got a little rhyme going. You know, you got just something there. You know, there's a way to do it. And if, and if it didn't work, 
Sometimes I used to like to name people after second string quarterbacks. You know why? <laughs> why? People would know their name, but they didn't know they couldn't place them. Right. They heard that name before. Vaguely familiar, right? Yeah, there you go. Vaguely familiar, you know? <laughs> and I had a guy, uh, uh, Cat Simon. Then we had a Cat Summers. What does that remind you of when you hear Cat? Um, Cat Stevens, I don't know. There you go. There you go. You know, you know how many times he called up and how many times people call him as for Cat Stevens? That's, right. that's just what I'm saying. It's got to sound, it's easy to remember. What, when was it time for you to leave Z100 1989? What sort of precipitated your, uh, uh, your, your end with the station there? As I, as I mentioned before, I was kind of a, a traveling salvation show. I, I barely stayed anywhere. Uh, I stayed in Nashville uh, longer. That's when I was in the learning process of being a, uh, a, a program director. I was like, at that time, I was like 25, 20, maybe 24, 25, somewhere in that range. Right. And uh, I, and I had a really good staff, just a, it was a really wonderful station. And, uh, and then I would get caught from then on, people would call me to fix their station, their fix their broken station. Right. And that was the, you know, and they really, and they heard the, the, the business is like a grapevine. They heard this guy can fix a station. And I wasn't the only guy that could do that. I mean, it was, you know, I just, I was a little more flamboyant than most. Right. Now, that, that, what did somebody in print one time said, this is a PT Barnum of radio. Well, they didn't understand that the structure of the station came first. You had to have a structure. If you had crazy, there are a lot of people who tried to do crazy radio, you know, but they didn't do the, they didn't take care of the basics. You got to build the building first mm. and then, you know, put the, as they say, the icing on the cake and all that kind of stuff. See, it's really interesting, you know, listening to you talk about this, your foresight is so strong. You really have, uh, I, I, and it sounds like you always kind of thought that way, even before you got to New Jersey or New York City. It seemed like you really understood what makes a radio station work. I, I think a lot of people also don't recognize that, you know, that your average person on the street doesn't understand how a radio, you know, what makes a successful radio station. Well, you build it like any, any great institution, like a good hospital or a good school it's right. got to kind of have the right structure but but you seem really tuned into that you know i think a lot of uh air on air personalities seem like they're you know it is personality driven but you really have an organizational uh side to you that's very very interesting very unique well i i find it boring to supervise or do that myself so what i'll do is different parts different organisms in the actual facility I design it and then I turn it over. I train someone else to overlook it. Mm. It's like an orchestra. Right. You know, I have the, I have the horns over here and the drums over here and, 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 and I'll train them or I'll, you know, lead them or whatever. And I keep an eye on everything though. Right. And consequently you wind up with some really good leaders and programmers and disc jockeys along the way. See, and I, 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 I really, believe in teamwork you look at all these great you know you look at all these great quarterbacks in football who never won a super bowl he right. didn't have a great team behind him you right. know archie manning the mannings you know peyton and eli's dad was a great quarterback 
as good as either one of those guys, but he never won a Super Bowl because he played for New Orleans the Saints. Right. You know, and they they never won a Super Bowl when he was there. They didn't have a good team. I think you do have another book in you. You have a book about. No, I, yes, this is the book. It's applying no, the no. concepts of, of building a radio station to any industry. You can. This is what it is. Perfect. Write the book then. <laughs> I'm done. This is this was it. I mean, I'm not done working. Right. I still enjoy it, but uh, and I enjoyed working with you today. It was a fun, fun, op- fun opportunity. What's next for what do you? And you're the foresight guy. What's next for radio as a medium? I I know it's very near and dear to both of our hearts, but it's in a difficult position right now. Where does where does radio go in the 21st century? Here, the thing that's become important, more important in radio right now, is content, right? And the actual personalities. I mean. I still have a passion for what I do. I entertain every morning. I feel a responsibility to the people who tune into the station to make sure we do compelling radio, compelling content. Right. You know, and I have a team of of wonderful people around me on uh, CBS FM. And every morning we come in there and, and, and really care about that show and try to touch people. And, you know, it, 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 it's it's important to me. I think one of the I guess one of the assets that I as I look back uh, is curiosity. Mm. When I first started in radio, I interviewed all these people I came in contact with at these small back then when I first started the, the small markets. They either had young people like me coming up or these old farts coming down who had, you know, problems with you know, alcohol or, uh, you know, they, uh, they got arrested for something, right. you know, and, and, and I would interview these people and listen to their stories about all oh, I worked in uh, New Orleans and uh, uh, the, I had some dumb program directors along the line. They didn't understand me. Uh, you know, you can hear, you can just see what was really wrong. Right. Right, right. Uh, when, when somebody tells you they had, you know, uh, they didn't understand me seven different places. Right, right. I like that voice you just used. It was like a fake radio. It was like an alternate radio announcer's voice. Hello, everybody. Good to have you on the air here. That's that's how I started out, because I wanted to imitate DJs. And some of the guys that I heard were the what we call pukers. <laughs> they sound like they're going to throw up on you. Hey, everybody, it's W.A.B.C. And guess who's on? <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Right. You know, that kind of thing. That old thing. That old gag. But I think I think people will enjoy this uh, documentary. It's it's not very long. It's an hour and what eight minutes long. And uh, it's available now. It's called Worst to First, the true story of Z100 New York. You learn from watching it. Right. You can actually see what made that station successful. Not just me, but some of the things that we did and how it worked. Absolutely. And you, you appreciate, I think you, the, the Z100, we kind of take it for granted. It's there. It's this hu- humongous thing that's always there on the radio. It's always available, but it, it is interesting to go back and see the origins, how it started. And it, it did come from uh, for simple beginnings. I'm also fortunate to have uh, Elvis Durant as a part of this thing now, who now hosts the morning show that I hosted for several years. Right. And, uh, and the guy who, uh, 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 brought him to town, a guy by the name of Tom Pullman, who's a brilliant programmer. Also, he's in the, he's in the movie. You'll see him also. 
It's called Where's the First? The True Story of Z100 New York. You can get it on Apple TV or Google people. Anywhere you get the, uh, you know, the downloads for movies. That's it. But you'll love it. I promise. Thank you. You're a pro. Thank you, Mr. Shannon. I appreciate it very much. I appreciate your time. Good luck at the station. Radar is produced by Evan Toth in partnership with WFDU 89.1 FM and the Vinyl District. You can hear Radar on WFDU 89.1 FM or anytime online at thevinyldistrict.com.